Welcome back to the Cafe for Christian Thought. We are taking another look at the pre-tribulation rapture. Remember last time, we had a look at two specific reasons why I don't believe in the pre-tribulation rapture. We looked at, number one, the fact that the gathering of the elect takes place immediately after the tribulation of those days in Matthew 24, 29. We then looked at the context and mentioned that Many of the verses that pre-tribulationists commonly refer to about no one knowing the day or the hour or about one person being taken and the other being left behind actually contextually refer back to this same verse in Matthew 24, 29, which occurs after the tribulation. Moreover, in Matthew 24, there is no indication whatsoever of a rapture or gathering of any type of elect prior to to the abomination of desolation. That is simply not in the text. Furthermore, we also talked about how in 2 Peter 3, the final judgment and time when God will usher in the new heavens and the new earth is also spoken of as coming like a thief in the night. Thus, the second coming and final judgment itself is also referred to in this similar language that pre-tribulationists used to say must indicate that there are two separate events, one which comes like a thief and one which doesn't. This really doesn't hold up if we have a look at the passages we touched on last time. Second, the snatching away or harpazo of 1 Thessalonians 4 takes place after the man of lawlessness is revealed, according to 2 Thessalonians 2. If we have a look at the context of 2 Thessalonians 2, talking about the gathering of the Christians to Christ, which picks up on what Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians 4, it's very clear that Paul is saying this will not happen until the son of perdition, who is commonly known as the Antichrist, is revealed. Now we're going to have a look at a few other points. Number three, the tribulation was spoken of as a present reality from when Revelation was written. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying there is not some type of final intensification of persecution right before Christ returns. What I am saying is we need to be very careful of taking a very black and white view of the tribulation and saying that it specifically refers to a seven-year period that's very far ahead in the future that had nothing to do with what John was writing about. This doesn't really stack up when we have a look at how John was writing this passage. Uh, sorry, I should say these passages in Revelation. A commonly used verse that these uh, pre-tribulationists like to use is Revelation 4.1 where John is told to come up here and see what must take place after this. They argue this shows the church is no longer on earth, for the tribulation begins, and the church era is spoken of in chapters 1 to 3 of Revelation. There are a few problems with this. First of all, John actually describes himself in Revelation 1.9 as a partner in the tribulation indicating it is a present reality. Second, if we have a look at the time frame that he allows in Revelation 1.20, he says Revelation is talking about things that he has seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this, which sets a framework for how a lot of Revelation is to be dealt with. There's things which have been seen or are in the past, those that are, and those that are to take place. This illustrates how we should approach images that he, re he refers to. For example, the seven-headed beast 
in Revelation 17, 10 to 11. He says, five heads have fallen. One is, and the other is not yet come. He also talks about a beast head that was and is not. Thus, there is a sense in which the symbols in Revelation refer to something past, present, and future. Not something that is strictly only relevant to the last seven years on the earth. Third, in Revelation 1.1, he claims he is talking about things which must soon take place, indicating immediate importance and relevance to the seven physical historic churches he was writing to. Fourth, Revelation is highly symbolic after chapter 3. So to say that because the, the word church is not used from chapter 4 onwards is a very weak argument for the pre-tribulation rapture indeed. Even if we have a look at Revelation 1.20 and how churches are described as lampstands there, and we see the use of lampstands again in Revelation 11.4, do we then say, well, the church must be around, so the pre-tribulation rapture is false? If we apply the same logic, clearly doesn't add up. Furthermore, we read of a great multitude from all tribes, tongues, and languages saved by the blood of the Lamb coming out of the great tribulation. Note, different tongues and languages, not specifically just Jews we are talking about in this instance. Furthermore, the nations are used symbolically throughout Revelation. Babylon's not taken literally by most pre-tribulationists. So why take Israel as literal physical Israel and not as symbolic of the church? We could then make an argument that when Israel or the Jewish people are referred to from Revelation 4 onwards, this is symbolically referring to the church. For the church, according to Galatians 6.16, is the Israel of God, the circumcision in Philippians 3.3, the temple of God in Ephesians 2, 18 to 21, a holy nation in 1 Peter 2, 9, the 12 tribes in the dispersion in James 1, 1, and those brought into the commonwealth of Israel in Ephesians 2, 12 to 13 through Christ. Furthermore, the church is referred to as a woman in the Bible in Ephesians 5, 22 to 23, and we read of a woman in Revelation 12. So to say, the word church isn't used after Revelation 4, so the church mustn't be there when Revelation 4 onwards is highly symbolic. Doesn't really add up, especially in light of all the points we just mentioned. Another weak argument that people like to use from Revelation to support the pre-tribulation rapture is that the church is the male child taken up to heaven in Revelation 12, 5. Before the 1260 days of Revelation 12:6, The male child rules the nations with a rod of iron, as does the Messiah in Psalm 2.9. Psalm 2 is so clearly a messianic passage, speaking of the anointed in Psalm 2.1 and the son begotten by God in Psalm 2.7, indicating there is no real reason to question that the Messiah is the male child of Revelation 12. Furthermore, the child is taken to God's throne. Notice the singular use of the word throne in Revelation 12.5. Just as Christ is at the right hand of God after his ascension in Acts 2.31-35. 
We'll now briefly touch on a fourth point, which points to why we probably shouldn't believe in a pre-tribulation rapture. The pre-tribulation rapture is very dependent on a specific interpretation of Daniel 9.24-27. Pre-tribulationism, by and large, rests on how they interpret these couple of verses, where they argue there's a gap between the 69th week, which ends with Christ being cut off, and the beginning of the 70th week, which begins with the Antichrist making a peace covenant. There's a number of issues with this view. First, there's simply no gap between the 69th and the 70th week. It is inserted there by pre-tribulationists. They assume there is no gap between the 62 and the 7 weeks mentioned and separated in Daniel 9.25, but conveniently add in a 2,000-year gap between the 69th and 70th week. For allowing gaps in one place, why can't we allow them in another? Moreover, point two, the abomination of desolation it refers to could be argued to relate to the literal physical temple Jesus was referring to in Matthew 24. In Matthew 24, 1-3, Jesus' disciples ask him about this temple. And Jesus says, the events he foretold around this would take place within a generation of those who were listening in Matthew 24, 34. Notice he differentiates this from his second coming, which he says no one knows the day or the hour of in Matthew 24, 36. Third, we could also ask, where's the idea of a rapture in the text between the 69th and 70th week? It's not there. Fourth, the context of Daniel 9.24-27 could be argued to be a messianic prophecy, as per verse 24, and contains a jubilee theme of 77s. Unlike the visions Daniel has in chapters 7 and 8 which alarm him, we see no such negative reaction here. I would argue verse 27 could be a parallel of verse 26, which expands on it in greater detail meaning that there is a punishment which flows to God's people for rejecting him, which corresponds with his saving act. This is consistent with the new covenant, which comes through Christ and then drives the subsequent desolation of the temple in 70 AD as a result of Israel's rejection of Christ. Could look at passages like Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34, Hebrews 8, 18 to 13, Luke 19, 41 to 44, etc. Could add another point here as well and state that Revelation 1, 9 and 12, 6 to 14 reinterpret the final three and a half years time period as being the time between when the woman, who is God's people, are in the wilderness and being attacked by the devil and the final coming of Christ. It could thus be the the age of persecution before Christ then returns, which was a present reality to the audience in Revelation 1.9, indicating potentially a non-literal time frame. Now, it's important to stress these are quite complex passages. So even if a few of these points 
are only possibilities and don't really stand, there's still a big stretch between a certain interpretation of Daniel 9 and a view of the pre-tribulation rapture overall. We see 1260, for example, three and a half years, is used as a period of tribulation throughout the Old Testament. So it could be argued that it's symbolic of a period of difficulty. Again, to have so much of your eschatological view pinned to your interpretation of Daniel 9, 24 to 27, when there's lots of different cases which could be made against that view, is quite dangerous indeed. Thanks for listening today. Join us again next time we have a look at the final point and also some implications of various views on the rapture.